So, Kevin, are you excited to count down our top 30? Yeah, Jeff, I sure am. Let's do it. From Portland, Oregon, I'm Jeff Payne. I'm Kevin Toon. This is The Pick. All right, Kevin, here we go with... Number 40, number 40, number 40. So I was actually anticipating the first release by a group called Garbage because I was aware that Nirvana producer Bush Vig had started the band. So when their self-titled debut dropped in August 95, my CD player was warmed up and ready. It did not disappoint, quite the opposite. Crunch music was in full swing, even as many of us were still reeling over Kurt Cobain's death only a year earlier. Garbage had the buzzy guitars of Nirvana, melded with samples and more of a pop sensibility. Bushvig and producer-guitarist Steve Marker had been producing remixes for such acts as U2, Depeche Mode, Nine Inch Nails, and House of Pain, but they wanted to transfer some of that sensibility into a band. They hooked up with British vocalist Shirley Manson and formed Garbage. Six singles were released, and the album reached number 20 in the U.S. a full year after its release, when the single Stupid Girl peaked at number 24. It remains their highest charting single ever. Listening to this record in recent weeks, Kevin, it brought to mind your comment about uh, NXS's kick, that every song could work as a single. And Bushvig's desire to mix it up, so to speak, lends itself to a record of diverse hooks and a dynamic collection of distinctive songs rather than a couple of singles and some filler. One critic at the time, Gil Kaufman from Addicted to Noise, said the album is akin to a Jackson Pollock painting thick layers upon layers of sound that have been stripped down, torn apart, pasted together, and then stripped again, until the result is a dizzying landscape that reveals fresh nuances upon repeated listening. You know, despite my love for this record, I never really connected much with their follow-up albums. They still are recording and touring. Their latest release was in 2021. But their self-titled debut in 95 is an underrated classic in my mind. Kevin, I've seen these guys in concert at least three times. They're always fun, and uh, I gotta tell you, Manson is a great front woman. She's, I think she's an underrated artist. She's so entertaining, and she's such a great vocalist as well. And she even played a Terminator really well in the Sarah Connor Chronicles. <laughs> well, that's a lock. For being on the Jeff Payne all-time leading frontwoman list, if I ever heard it. I mean, it's absolutely great choice. To me, this is really a great example of what I would say a band that was really a staple of the 90s alt radio sound. 
you called it a buzzing guitar. I, I thought of it more like almost raging guitar, but then laid out over groovy dance elements. That's good. Um, yeah. The con- the contrast of that I find uh, really appealing. Perfect example to a band that I've wanted to hear more. It was really fun to listen to this this first record. I just remember thinking, wow, you know, th- this band. I don't know if they got all the, the credit they were due, you know, back in the '90s. Also, really found almost like a soothing quality to uh, Manson's vocals. I mean, she doesn't really have the the snarl or the growl to her approach, but her vocals really add kind of a rich tone to the whole composition. And I, I didn't know about the producer being the, the Nirvana collaborator. I think that was his intention on Nevermind, too, was when, when he went into studio with Nirvana, they wanted to create an album that had a lot of standalone, single-type yeah. songs that could be singles. And it may be like the quintessential 90s album for me in some ways, because it was released in the mid-90s, the, the month I moved to the beach. And, you know, they, they never got as big as uh, Nirvana or Beck, the other albums I was listening to at the time. So it was a little bit more personal for me because I really love them and nobody else was talking about them at the time. Great choice. I, I mentioned I've seen them in concert but three times. The most recent time was at Edgefield, and guess who they opened for? In excess. No. <laughs> oh, these guys? <laughs> okay. <laughs> At number 30 for me, truly a one-of-a-kind combination of punk, pop, rock, reggae, and even disco from a pioneering band in the post-punk late 1970s new wave movement. It's The Best of Blondie, released in 1981. That's the band's first number one single, Heart of Glass, which came out in early 1979 and leveraged the popularity of disco, but simultaneously was introducing something new, which you can hear on the follow-up rocker, their next release from that album, Parallel Lines, One Way or Another, which today you can actually still hear on classic rock stations. As we moved into the 1980s, Blondie would hit number one three more times in the span of 12 months, first with Call Me from the American Gigolo soundtrack in the spring of 1980, then early in 1981 with this reggae-infused remake. That's The Tide Is High, which hit number one in 1981. It was a remake of a Jamaican band that first recorded it back in the 1960s. In late March of 81, Blondie not only topped the charts for a fourth time, but they completely broke new ground with Rapture. (music) 
Both Rapture and The Tide is High came from the 1980 release Auto American, which was the band's fifth studio album, and in my opinion, its crowning achievement. The video for Rapture actually preceded the start of MTV by about eight months. It was actually debuted on a show called Solid Gold. Remember that one? Although not widely recognized at that time, today historians will generally acknowledge that Rapture is indeed the first number one single with rap vocals. You know, Jeff, Blondie packed a lot into a really short period of time from 1970 to 1981. They kickstarted 80s New Wave and the MTV era with a unique blend of wide ranging musical styles. And behind it all, the driving force was their absolutely amazing lead singer, Debbie Harry. To me, a true pioneer, brash, sexy, daring, smart, controversial but experimental as well. She was ahead of her time and I think really paved the way for female pop stars and, and rock front women uh, in year, for years to come, not unlike Shirley Manson of Garbage. Yeah, great pick. I've never really been that much into Blondie, but they were always there, you know? Yeah. <laughs> we listened to them as kids even before I was much into music. Their hit songs were big. Kind of leaves an impression on a junior high school kid when a, a monster only eats guitars. <laughs> Do you remember seeing the video on Solid Gold back in the day? I remember Solid Gold, yes, I remember that. <laughs> At my number 30 from 1981, that is the best of Blondie. Number 29. All right, so this is probably not the best guitar riff ever, but it's definitely one of the most recognized and iconic. At number 29, it's a title track, Highway to Hell, the seminal hard rock masterpiece from ACDC in 1979. And I said recognizable and iconic, but really its significance in my personal history of music appreciation, it's, it's hard to top this. This was the band's sixth studio album, and I believe the only one that could be considered a rock masterpiece alongside, of course, Back in Black. And Kevin, I attest that if you do not know in your bones how the next song opens, when this track ends, you do not qualify as a true fan of rock and roll. <laughs> wow. So, can you tell me? Did you hear it in your head already what the next guitar opening chord is for the next song? It's coming to me. Okay. Okay, so do you know it? Do you hear it coming? Not yet. I paused it because I didn't want you to give me the riff. <laughs> I'm still trying to... Uh... Wait, are you queuing it up? 
Yeah. <laughs> no, come on. You just got to tell me if you know it by in your bones. <laughs> <laughs> I can hear something. I just, I, I don't know the tracks. Well. Doesn't come I, to you? I, I, I have that sense of anticipation that something's coming, but the notes are not in my head yet. So there it is. All right. That's a, well, that's a pretty. I mean, boy, you really laid it out there. I mean, you that's failed. Like, you failed the test. I'm sorry. Yeah. Apparently, I, have, <laughs> I, I, I have to go back to rock and roll kindergarten. Apparently. So this is the second track, Girls Got Rhythm, and along with the opener, sets the tone for a raucous adventure of touring, women, booze, and partying that represented lead singers and lyricist Bon Scott's peak of hedonistic joy. Which, sadly, culminated in his alcohol-related death only seven months after this album was released. It's almost as if he was telegraphing his impending death by alcohol with this album, which pretty much says nothing other than, hey, we're partying and having fun. And there really is nothing too serious here, lyrically, which is a bit of a change from the previous album I picked, Powerage. And there's also a fair amount of clever humor, like the way in which they describe their female protagonist's figure in Touch Too Much. She's got the body of Venus with arms. <laughs> so dorky. They had to come up with something. <laughs> I know. The album, though, was truly a breakthrough, being the first to hit the top 100 in the States, peaking at number 17. It was followed only one year later and only five months after Scott's death by their mega blockbuster Back in Black. My foray into ACDC, and in many ways of all rock and roll, started with Back in Black's release, and I worked my way backwards to discover this album and then their earlier work. Similar to Back in Black, I know Highway to Hell backwards and forward. I know every riff, beat, and word before it lands. Still, it is a distinctive sound from their later works when Brian Johnson took over after Scott's death. This album is definitely more bouncy, more jaunty, and light in theme than most of their later work. Couldn't agree with you more on where that guitar riff ranks in terms of, you know, the all-time greats. Uh, you're certainly going to get lots of arguments in terms of, you know, where it is in the top ten or whatever of all time. But it's such a wonderful signature and such a great start to a record, I think, in its simplicity. That, yeah, yeah. It's not a complex construction. It starts out very simple by itself. They they sort of subtly bring in the super simplistic Phil Rudd drumming right, you know, 10, 10 or 15 seconds into it. For me, there's no better song in the ACDC catalog than Highway to Hell, quite frankly. You think that's your favorite ACDC song? Right now, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just such a instant burst of energy when I hear that. Being around the bus. One of the things about Highway to Hell that I've really noticed more lately is something I mentioned. It's just, it's bouncier, it's more fun. It's right. almost all the songs are about just partying and having fun. And they really got a lot more serious uh, when Brian Johnson came on. Of course, serious was almost called for 
with Back in Black because they just experienced the death of Bon Scott. Yeah. But I don't ever think they got back to the real fun that they had with this album. Oh, no. I love Back in Black, and I also like uh, For Those About to Rock. But after those two, they've released dozens of albums, and I, I've never really cared much for any right. of them. Right. So they've had some big hits in there, like Money Talks and Thunderstruck, but just never an album that matched the level of Highway to Hell or Back in Black. Yeah, this was, the, this was probably the peak of their sort of nasty, raunchy period. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I hadn't considered it the way you brought it up earlier in the segment, but the album could easily have been called Highway to Death. Yeah. <laughs> because, could be, I yeah. mean, it, it really was sort of his final chapter and, and good night now. And there was some controversy about the title Highway to Hell, and but I mean the reason they came up with the song and the album name was just touring in America. They just, they, I mean, they weren't right. rich yet; they weren't that famous, so they did not have high class accommodations. They talk about, you know, waking up in a van with you know Angus Young's feet in your face. It's just like <laughs> it was it was hell for them traveling and trying to make it big, and uh, that's what they came up with. Uh, it's not really about uh, anything to do with the devil or hell. So that's my number twenty nine. Needs no introduction. Hey guys, it's Matt. And I really, really don't want you to ever play Steely Dan ever again, alright? At number 29 for me, a band that we learned in an earlier episode of The Pick generally falls into that love em or hate em category among rock fans. From 1985, this is a decade of Steely Dan. In the morning you go gardening for the man who stole your water. Formed in 1971 in Annandale, New York, Steely Dan at its core is the dynamic creativity of Donald Fagan and Walter Becker. Throughout the 70s and into the early 80s, the duo enjoyed international commercial success and a steady presence on pop and rock radio with a sound that combined rock, jazz, Latin music, R&B, and blues, and was punctuated by meticulous, sophisticated studio production and the duo's own unique flair for intellectual lyrics. This is their first big radio classic, Do It Again, from their 1972 debut, and it reached number six on the Billboard charts. For me, a big part of the appeal of Steely Dan is Donald Fagan's vocals, which are not only a primary component in their sound, but frankly, I really can't think of another lead vocalist in rock or pop who sounds like him. For me, hearing that voice on the radio made a Steely Dan tune instantly recognizable. Your everlasting summer, you can see it fading fast. So you grab a piece of something that you think is gonna last. But over many years of listening to their catalog, I've also come to realize how significant Walter Becker's guitar playing was in their sound as well. And a song that really captures that is this one, Reeling in the Years. Are you reeling in the years? Stowing away the time. The Steely Dan catalog is full of songs that frankly sound nothing like rock, and yet they found their way into heavy rotation on rock radio, and they're still mainstays on classic rock stations. A perfect example is this track from 1974, Ricky Don't Lose That Number. We hear you're leaving, that's okay. Appropriately, Rolling Stone magazine has called Steely Dan the unique musical anti-heroes of the 70s, and it's songs like Ricky that drive that point home. Ricky don't lose that number. You don't want to 
masterpiece of the Steely Dan category was Asia, released in September of 1977 and featuring Peg, a song that might be the most recognizable and one that demonstrates their studio perfectionism. So if you want to dive into the uber-meticulous process that these guys would put into making an album, check out the Classic Albums episode on Amazon Prime that profiles the making of Asia. It also validates another important aspect of this band. Steely Dan is the work of two studio craftsmen, and admittedly, they really had no interest in being a live band. In the early 2000s, I actually had the chance to go see them here in Portland at the Rose Garden Arena, and believe it or not, I left early. Their work in the studio is painstakingly crafted, and it just really didn't translate well to an arena setting. I wonder if that might play a role in why among music fans, there's no in-between with Steely Dan. It's just, they're one of those bands that people either get it, and they dig their stuff, or they just have no use for them. Jeff, you had this compilation at number 85 on your list, and my guess is we both uh, purchased this around the same time. I mentioned it before, the college years, the fascination with the BMG CD club. Absolutely. It was one of my early CD purchases as I tried to build that uh, collection. I think I had a a single stack tower (laughs) CD rack, and I wanted to get it all the way to the top, so I just started buying CDs here and there, and this is one of them just because it's like, oh yeah, I like this. It's kind of funny coming right after Highway to Hell, which is all about partying and women. <laughs> um, those guys were like young partiers, but these guys were like were a little bit higher class, you think? But yes. so do it again. He's talking about murdering someone who stole his water, right, right, and shooting him until he's he's dead. And then there's no hangman available, so they just leave him lying in the street. But then he goes off and he has sex with a woman who breaks his heart <laughs> and ends up gambling in Vegas. That's the story of Do It Again. <laughs> We talk about FM, where it's basically about seducing women with music. Young girls, they don't seem to care as long as the mood is right. Kick off your high heel sneakers. And and if you feed her some hungry reggae, she'll love you twice. But then, of course, the crowning achievement is Hey 19, where he's the dandy of Gamma Chi. Right. Who says dandy since the 1800s. Right, right. He talks about all the sweet things from Boston that are so young and willing. (laughs) <laughs> and we can't talk at all. You don't even know who Aretha Franklin is. Right, right. <laughs> Just skate a little roller now. And we'll have some tequila and Colombian marijuana. I was going to say, where's the Cuervo gold <laughs> yeah. and fine Colombian? It's so, so funny. That, that wonder, I never knew those lyrics. And the line is, the Cuervo gold, the fine Colombian. <laughs> yeah. Make tonight a wonderful <laughs> thing. So let's guzzle tequila, get high, and... Do whatever. With a 19-year-old. With I mean, a so, 19-year-old. so it's like the ACDC were the partying, uh, the party boys. Sealy Dan were the creepy old men preying on teenage girls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the nerdy, creepy old men. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That aside, Hey 19 and Do It Again are like two of the best rock songs ever, I think. They're just so I know. great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, there's so much layering to what they do, but it still doesn't make sense to me how it's really considered rock, but... Kudos to these guys for finding their niche. This is some Charles Manson stole from the Beatles. We're stealing the back. When you get to the bottom, you go back to the top of the slide, and you stop, and you turn, and you go for the road. 
That's a cover of the Beatles' Helter Skelter, the song that opens U2's Rattle and Hum, which is a hybrid of live performances and studio recordings. It was released in 1988 in conjunction with the concert movie of the same name, and it's my choice at number 28. It's the band's only double album. It's their only full-length live album. And it's perhaps the group's most polarizing release. That's the lead single, Desire, which was actually the band's first number one hit in the UK, and it reached number three in the US. About this album, critics were pretty sharply divided. Tom Carson from The Village Voice called it an awful record by almost any rock and roll fan standards, and said the group's failure did not sound attributable to pretensions so much as to monumental know-nothingism. <laughs> I can't get much harsher than that. Meanwhile, Jay Cox of Time said, U2 has never sounded better or bolder, calling Rattle and Hum the best live rock album ever made. <laughs> wow. The record in every sense of their lives. So I cannot really think of a way to criticize or compliment an album bigger than that on both sides of the spectrum. Very divergent views. But for me, I really just enjoyed the somewhat disparate combination of live tracks, new studio tracks, and guest stars as the band toured America for the Joshua Tree album. That's B.B. King singing there with Bono on one of the album's best tracks, When Love Comes to Town. The movie Rattle and Hum was released in my senior year of college and was one of the movies I reviewed as a host of my movie review TV show. I really loved it, and I still do. So my love for this record followed as I had it on repeat for much of that year. To me, the criticism didn't matter. I don't think I was even aware of it. I wasn't expecting another Joshua Tree. Why would we? That's a classic. And I felt Rattle and Hum was simply a joyous celebration of Joshua Tree's tremendous brilliance and success. It was also great to hear some live versions of the Joshua Tree hits because being in our small college town, we had no chance of seeing them live. And perhaps the best track on the record for me where the lyric Rattle and Hum comes from is Bullet the Blue Sky. So Kevin, I am very interested to hear your take, you being a major U2 fan. For me, a favorite album doesn't need to be one of their best. I enjoy this one more as a testament to the band's success and experimentation, and it feels separate from their studio albums. I think maybe for me it was also a bit welcome as much as I love Joshua Tree, we played the hell out of it on our radio station and in my car uh, right before this movie came out. I think your choice of the word polarizing was spot on. Uh, I would also probably add the word overkill to the conversation because I think what you're describing Rattle and Hum to me still kind of symbolizes the first time you two reached radio overkill or audience oversaturation um, and I think that's why you heard some of the critics blister it so badly because Joshua Tree was just this phenomenon that couldn't get any bigger and so many people looked at this as their their follow-up which it absolutely was not 
And yet, I think it also turned a lot of the broader audience away because they just felt like it was sort of self-indulgent. I remember hearing that, you know, that descriptor for this record. And I'll admit, for a while, I got pretty tired of listening to it too. And I played the hell out of it, you know, when it first came out and saw the movie a bunch of times too. Much, much better appreciation for it now. And I think, you know, some amazing new tracks came with that record. I mean, Desire is one of their all-time greats, but also uh, the song All I Want Is You is one of their best album closers in their entire catalog. And the moments they capture live, like this one with Bullet or Silver and Gold or the choir version of Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For, those are gems that are wonderful to listen to, you know, this many years later. So... You know, great choice and intriguing that it really, I mean, first when I thought, when I heard this, I'm like, okay, he ranks this higher than Octung Baby. He's going to have to explain <laughs> that to me. But I get it. There's a history there for you that, you know, this, this record, I think, probably still represents. That's exactly right. It's my personal history with it. I, for a while, thought it was my favorite U2 album. And, and now, years later, I have a little bit different perspective. And Joshua Tree is higher. I would say, from a critic's perspective, Several of their albums are better than this, but they're not on my list because they just didn't resonate with me the way this one did. And all the things you said about the band, self-indulgent, that's all the stuff that was being said about them, and it really affected the band, too. And they, when they went back to the studio, they just they took a complete left turn, with right. starting with Octum Baby and then Zoo Ropa and all that stuff. They just became a different band, and I think a lot of the criticism they got from the overkill aspect of this is what really helped drive them in that direction. So it, it ended up having a, 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 an interesting effect on the second half of their career. Oh yeah, Bono, Bono's been quoted as saying that Octung Baby is basically the sound of them burning the Joshua tree. And, and you're right, it absolutely affected the arc of their career. So whether you attribute it to monumental know-nothingism or consider it the best live album ever, it's my number 28, U2's Rattle and Hum. Up next for me, Apple Music describes them as a, quote, spaceship containing a nine-man squad of cosmic funk R&B superheroes, combining Latin grooves, funk, and celestial vocal harmonies. It's the best of Earth, Wind, and Fire, Volume 1, released in November of 78. February of that year, that song is Fantasy, showcasing the unique vocal talents of Philip Bailey. In its review of this compilation, the New York Daily News once wrote, Since its beginning, Earth, Wind & Fire have been one of the slickest soul aggregations around, and this record is a well-paced showcase. Sometimes it's hard to believe that the combination of influences ranging from Sly Stone and Stevie Wonder to the decidedly Chicago-esque horn arrangements doesn't overcome the group but its high spirits continually take it over the top. This is another of the many albums that I can recall listening to as a young kid, hearing them again and again, either on the family stereo or on the radio. Uh, one of my older sisters, I'm sure, had this record. I know she did. And I can remember being captivated by the cool red album cover with the large gold medallion and its unique symbols along with this amazing sound that I hadn't heard before. It basically was my introduction to funk music. That's the title track from their breakthrough LP, That's the Way of the World, from March of 75. 
The song reached number 12 on the Billboard charts. I realize now this album also represents the first time that I'd heard a band that really generated a big sound. Led by founding member Maurice White, Earth, Wind & Fire came out of Chicago in 1969 and, according to Rolling Stone magazine, succeeded in changing the sound of black pop music. Here's their first number one single, also from 1975, Shining Star. Rolling Stone also described Earth, Wind & Fire's sound as innovative, precise yet sensual, calculated yet galvanizing. As the decade of the 70s progressed, the band became superstars with their long string of hits and their elaborate stage shows, which at one point included a disappearing act assisted by then-popular magician Doug Henning and his apprentice David Copperfield. That, of course, is September, probably the band's most recognizable song. It reached number eight on the Billboard Hot 100 and number one on Billboard's Soul Charts in 1978. In 2018, the song September was added to the Library of Congress's National Recording Registry of sound recordings that are, quote, culturally, historically, or aesthetically important. Jeff, I would say the same about this band, culturally, historically, and aesthetically important. One of the most important artists from an amazing period in soul music. I just feel like I'm at a wedding. <laughs> the September is a song, because I DJ sometimes, and it's like one of the best songs to start out to get people on the floor. All the boomers and Gen Xers come yeah. running out? No, everybody, every age. Oh, nice. Toddlers come out. They just love this song. I mean, it's just such a great dance song. Yeah. So much energy, so much fun. But even if you don't know much about it or recognize or know the, know who does it. And that's what I'd say about Earth, Wind & Fire, too. They're like one of the most iconic bands I never really knew much about. Hmm. Never had a record of them. Always knew their name more than I knew which songs they did. Always knew their songs without knowing who did them. Hmm. And I'm actually pretty surprised to see it this high on your list. Why do you think it gets so high for you as opposed to some of the other records we've covered? Well, I, I, probably because... I guess the way I would describe it is it's the size of their sound because it's a nine-man band. I don't think, you know, that probably don't have that anywhere else on my list, the band that big. And I think what Maurice White, by the way, rest in peace, we lost him a few years ago, founding member, set out to do was take the Sly and Family Stone model to another level. And it had all these wonderful layers to it. They are not maybe not as appreciated as they should be in terms of their place in establishing the significance of, of great soul music during that time and mm -hmm. it also comes down to just music that's just you know burned into your consciousness you know a, a band that is similar but didn't make the list would be like the commodores you know another band i really liked from that period produces a lot of the same kind of music but there's just there was such a distinct signature with earth wind and fire i think that's probably the reason so there it is, one of the most important artists from an amazing period in soul music. That's my number 28 pick, The Best of Earth, Wind & Fire, Volume 1. All right, time now for... I want to reach out and grab you. Whoops, that's the wrong sound. <laughs> Sorry about that. 
what I meant to say <laughs> is time now for the pick line. Oh, God. Things that'll be played at my funeral. Hi, this is Michelle Mahoney, and I'm going to list out some of my favorite albums in no particular order from over the, the years. This is really top of my head. I'm sure I could come up with even more, but I couldn't narrow it down to less than 10. I'm sorry, guys. So in no particular order, um, Sign of the Times by Prince, Blue by Joni Mitchell, Marque Moon by Television, Doolittle by the Pixies, Kind of Blue, Miles Davis, Back to Black by Amy Winehouse, Automatic for the People, R.E.M., Live Through This, Full, Nevermind, Nirvana, and Seat at the Table, Falange. Those are some of my picks, and probably tell what era I'm from just by listening to this. Thanks. Bye-bye. So this is the first time we've heard any prints on the countdown. So far. Yes. But but that may soon change, my friend. I think it may change in this very episode. Yes, indeed. In France, a skinny man died of a big disease with a little name. How's that for foreshadowing? So she had a good uh, range of picks. Also picked Miles Davis, the first jazz pick. I, I didn't really consider jazz on my list. Me neither. But, uh, I'm not worthy of that. I'm not into jazz enough to even have one on my top 100. Maybe my top 200. And Kind of Blue would be would be the one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, there's, there's others that I think over the years I made sure to go out and try to buy just to just try to catch that wave. But I just never listened to him enough. John Coltrane would have been another one. Yeah, definitely. She also hit Amy Winehouse, Joni Mitchell, Pixies, all, all groups, I think, that are going to miss our list, but we highly respect. Well, you know, and she makes the comment, you can see what era I'm from, but Joni Mitchell kind of blows that out of the water because that's, bit, yeah. Yeah, that, that almost predates you and me. Great job, Michelle. This is a cool list, and you've uh, you haven't inspired me to listen to all of these. I probably won't. uh, (laughs) But for an example, I've always been kind of curious about television, uh, which again kind of falls out of her era comments. But I'd heard over the years that television was a big influence on YouTube, so I've always kind of been curious about that. Well, she actually picked that in one of our new music episodes that you uh, abstain from. Um, ah, because she okay. kind of only discovered it a couple of years ago. And I don't know much about Solange. What's That's uh, Beyonce's sister. Come on. Well, that, that's part of the educational purpose of this <laughs> little, little program we do here. She mentioned Prince. We both have a Prince pick coming up in this episode. But let's take a look at our top 21, which are the ones we'll have after this episode. Right. And at the end of this episode, we will predict how many we expect to see on the others list. I am on it. You're on it? I'm on it, too. This next one is... The first song on our new album. This next one is the second rap album on my list. At my number 27, it's Check Your Head, the third album from Beastie Boys, released in 1992. You know, when I covered Kanye West's My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy at number 53, I said it was the only rap album on my list, and I just totally forgot about Beastie Boys. And maybe the reason for that is although the Beastie Boys certainly rap, 
They also include a lot of funk, jazz, punk, and whatever you call this. So really, there's a lot here that's not even rap, with instrumental contributions from all three members, Adam Horowitz, Adam Yock, and Mike Diamond. It's really a lot of fun, whatever genre they're trying to do. When I was in college, they hit the scene with their first album, License to Ill, and their mega hit, Fight for Your Right to Party. They were three white boys from New York that could certainly yell, but had an infectious mix of punk and rap. They kind of reinvented themselves for their second album, Paul's Boutique, which is often considered their finest work, but at the time didn't get a lot of attention, totally passed me by. But they finally got their due with this album, which combines some of the party elements of the first album and genre experimentation of their second, and it all started with this single. This song only reached number 93 on the singles chart, but it was in very heavy rotation on my go-to station of the early 90s, KROQ of Pasadena. So I was game, and this became one of the staples of my 90s CD rotation. The album ended up reaching number 10 in the US, but really launched them into superstardom, as the three albums that followed it all reached number one. So Kevin, when it comes to 90s, this was pretty much one of my staples. I wish I could have seen them in concert at the time, but as it was, we just went to several bars and clubs where they were playing this stuff all the time and pretty much had it on in the car on the way there too. Excellent choice. Um, this is the Beasties album I'm most familiar with, but I didn't really get into it. Where have you heard this story before? <laughs> Until way after the 90s. I remember hearing What You Want in the car in 1992 when a girlfriend put it on because she had the cassette and I was like, get this crap off. <laughs> and, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what, Jeff, I don't know what was wrong with me at times in the 90s. I just didn't, I look back at some of the stuff that I didn't, that I just turned away from or didn't take the time to try to enjoy, including yeah. an album like this. And I'm like, where was my head back then? Yeah. God, was I just listening to Sophie B. Hawkins or something? I don't know. Yeah, well, you probably were, but... <laughs> Your comment about their style with this one, I think is really interesting because it's almost like genre-bending sound is the, way I, is the term I came up with because it's so funky, but it has this super heavy quality to it with the distortion effects and some of the heavy guitar licks and hooks that they use in there. But what I really enjoy about listening to it is it just throws so much at you from beginning to end but they find a way to make this mishmash into something kind of symmetrical and catchy and fun it's really cool yeah and, and you know i guess i always thought of it as a rap album but when i listen back to it now you just hear songs like this one playing now it's just this isn't rap it's just very experimental <laughs> and it was very much a a, a uh, i think transition between paul's boutique and their later albums which i think stuck more of a pop rappy vein Right. But, uh, which I liked. I liked several of their uh, follow-ups, but this one's always the one that stuck with me. It's Check Your Head from 1992 and the Beastie Boys, my choice at number 27. Mm. 
All right, for me at number 27, widely considered a cornerstone of the grunge movement and the broader alternative rock sound, Pearl Jam's debut masterpiece, 10, released in August of 1991. When you listen to 10, you're literally hearing the formation of a band that eventually made it to the Rock Hall of Fame in 2017. The album started out as a five-song instrumental demo that founding members Stone Gossard, Mike McCready, and Jeff Amitt recorded and shopped around in their search for a lead singer. And that tape eventually found its way to San Diego musician and vocalist Eddie Vedder, who reworked the lyrics and added to the tracks. They liked what they heard, and soon after, Vedder auditioned and Pearl Jam was born. That song, Alive, announced the band's arrival as the lead single from 10. It's a rather deceptive song in that many listeners have interpreted it as an inspirational anthem with uplifting instrumentals and an uplifting chorus. However, Vetter has, has revealed that Alive actually tells the semi-autobiographical tale of a son discovering that his father is actually his stepfather, his real father having died long ago, while his mother's grief turns to her sexually embracing her son, who strongly represents the biological father. That's a lot, but definitely not matching up with the whole inspirational anthem idea. At home, darling pictures of mountaintops. 10 was not an immediate success. It actually reached its high water mark of the number two spot on the Billboard album charts in late 1992. That's well over a year after its release. This slow, steady climb was punctuated by the buzz generated by the music video accompanying the album's third single, Jeremy, a song inspired by the suicide of a Texas high school student who shot himself in front of his second period English class. Dark subject matter permeates this album as Gossard in particular sought an edgier sound while he was grieving the drug overdose death of a former bandmate. In honoring Pearl Jam at their Rock Hall of Fame induction, late night TV legend David Letterman actually said, 10 tapped into an unrest felt by many at the time. Quote, I was almost 50 and even I was pissed off. Now, mixed into all that anger at the literal and emotional center of this record, you'll find Black, which started out as an instrumental demo called E-Ballad by Gossard. Despite pressure from Epic Records, the band refused to make this song into a single, citing it as too personal. And now my Certified 13 times platinum, 10 is generally regarded at the very top of the 90s alternative rock sound, highlighted by Vetter's unusually deep and strong and much imitated vocals. There were some notable haters responding to this record, including none other than Nirvana's Kurt Cobain, who angrily attacked Pearl Jam claiming the band were commercial sellouts and arguing that 10 was not a true alternative album because it had so many prominent guitar leads. 
whatever. Hey, Jeff, I'm curious. Did this album even make your list? No, it's not on my list. Okay. I kind of thought after I did some of this research, and especially when I read that quote by Cobain, I thought, I'm I'm willing to bet Payne. He's casting his vote with Cobain on this one. I never knew Cobain thought that. Oh, okay. I was going to say, I was preparing to say before you said that, and I'm still going to say it, that uh, to me, this is the second most significant band of the grunge era after Nirvana. That's a huge statement, and yet nowhere in your top 100. I think some others might argue it was Soundgarden, but I can't think of anybody else other than those three that come close. Was it an album that you just never really got into at the time? I liked it a lot. I I got it. I bought it. I liked it. For some reason, though, Pearl Jam's music just never stuck with me the way that all these albums on my list have. In fact, listening to this album, I don't even remember the second half of it. I like all all the songs that weren't the hits. And I also bought the ones after the the, the, the few releases after this. Yeah. Um, and I enjoyed them. They were good albums, but uh, they didn't stick with me. And that's number 27 for me, 10 from Pearl Jam. Monday morning, you showed the fight. Friday, I got trapped on my mind. This is Monday Morning, the opening track to Fleetwood Mac's self titled Smash album from 1975. Kevin, you had this one at number 69, criminally low, I must say. (laughs) But since you played the hit singles Rhiannon and Say You Love Me in your segment, I thought I'd focus on some of the non-singles that complement the hits and really lock this into my top 30. This was Fleetwood Mac's 10th studio album. But it was the first one to feature their new lineup, which includes singer Stevie Nicks, who later went on to a huge solo career, and also singer-guitarist Lindsey Buckingham, who you may know from the hit TV show, What's Up With That? (laughs) Buckingham, Nicks, and ongoing member Christine McVie all share songwriting and vocal credit pretty evenly here, which would become their tradition for many albums to follow. The album peaked at number one over a year after its release and 58 weeks after entering the charts. It included three top 20 singles, Rhiannon, Say You Love Me, and Over My Head. Although this song, Stevie Nicks' Landslide, was not released as a single in the 70s, it has become a well-known classic as a version was released in 1998 in conjunction with their live album, The Dance. To my love, took it down. It's also been a popular song for other bands to cover over the years. This is the album's closer, I'm So Afraid, a song that really connects this record to some of their older work in my mind, which I never really delved into thoroughly, although I really would like to. Kevin, we've talked about the Mac before when you picked this one and I picked Tusk. They were the first band that I probably considered myself a fan of. I started with Rumors and also Mirage. I then got this one in Tusk and then had to wait a while for their last great record, Tango in the Night. But it was this one, sometimes called the White Album by fans, that started their historic run. 
So, criminally low, huh? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I, you know, you're not going to get a lot of pushback from me on that. This is a great record. For a lot of us, this is where the Mac begins. Like you kind of mentioned in your, your, your early commentary, it sounds like your experience maybe was a little bit different. I, I, I was introduced to this record just by the songs that made it on the radio, primarily Say You Love Me. It also quickly got forgotten because rumors came about so fast. I mean, felt like this this album was finding its way and then rumors just came along and it was gigantic and you sort of forgot about this record. And there's so many just gems on this thing from top to bottom. Yeah, it really captures that the, the magic of the chemistry of Lindsay and Stevie joining the band, but I think the connection that that they had with Christine McVie. Yeah, it's interesting that this was actually the band's 10th lineup in eight years. Wow. They had gone through so many different lineups. I mean, they started with Peter Green, of course, Nick Fleetwood and John McVie were the constants, and they just had different people falling in and out. But once they got this lineup, this is the one that lasted. This is by far their biggest selling batch of albums. Number 26, Fleetwood Mac's self-titled album from 1975. Twenty-six for me, an American rocker leverages success and has a statement for his growing audience, his management, and his record label. From now on, it's my music and it's my vision. That's Crumbling Down, the lead single from Uh Huh, John Cougar Mellencamp's seventh studio album released in October of 1983 as a follow-up to his commercial breakthrough, American Fool. This first single reached number nine on the Billboard charts and the video, featuring a chain-smoking, dancing, chair-kicking Mellencamp, was a staple on MTV in the fall of Writer Jeff Giles of UltimateClassicRock.com describes Uh-Huh as the album that, quote, cemented Mellencamp's rock star status while flashing the fierce populist streak that would come to define his music. That track is Authority Song, which reached number 15 in the spring of 1984. Just a year earlier, he'd been known as John Cougar or Johnny Cougar. Now, armed with commercial success, he was rebranding, using his real last name and breaking with the past. Uh-huh might best be described as garage rock. It's the sound of songs deliberately recorded and mastered without extensive rehearsal. It's a collection of spontaneous compositions by an artist and his backing band feeling validated for doing music their way and without the restrictions of the music business. You may drive around town in a brand new shiny car You're facing the wind and your head cuts in Friends make your bizarre that's the appropriately named Play Guitar, which has the feel of a jam session captured on tape. For much of America, Mellencamp's sound was the perfect antidote to the recently deceased disco era and the synthesizer and drum machine driven sound of so many English new wave bands on the airwaves at that time. But for me, what puts this Mellencamp album above all others is track number two.
his first hit song with a political message and the second to include a hint of his folk music influences, the classic Pink Houses. This black man with black hair. Recorded in a farmhouse, the song was inspired by Mellencamp driving along an overpass and seeing an old black man sitting outside his little pink shotgun house with a cat in his arms, completely unperturbed by the traffic speeding along the highway in his front yard. Quote, he waved and I waved back, Mellencamp said in an interview with Rolling Stone. That's how Pink Houses started. The themes of Pink Houses make it one of Mellencamp's most enduring songs, as I witnessed firsthand here in Portland in a small theater just a few years ago. So Jeff, Uh-Huh wasn't just the successful follow album achieving triple platinum status. It was the record that said, Mellencamp is here to stay, which we saw when he went in two very different directions with his next two releases, Scarecrow in 85, and then Lonesome Jubilee in 1987. Yeah, I remember when you covered Scarecrow, it was right after, uh, or in the same episode with Lucinda Williams, and I just said, I, I really like that these albums are together because they just feel like they're really American albums, like the Midwest, and yeah. that's what John Cougar Mellencamp always sings about. And that story about seeing the old guy at the pink house is just perfect. I mean, that's that's John Cougar's music in a, in a nutshell. I should say John Mellencamp. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when was the last time we called him Cougar? Right? Yeah, yeah, that's him in a nutshell. That's what he, he, he sees that stuff, he lives that stuff, and he sings about it. He's not on my list. He's never been someone I got really excited about. But, you know, when I listen to these records that you pick, Scarecrow and this one especially... And the four songs you featured uh, on this episode, they're just fantastic songs. And, you know, it's just great American rock. I hadn't thought about this much in the past, but again, researching this gave me a new perspective. He really did represent a response for a lot of this country in terms of musical taste. I think particularly in the Midwest and in the South, where people just didn't have any interest at all in sort of synthesizer-driven new waves that was coming out of England or repackaged disco, which was a lot of what the pop sound was, you know, in the 80s. And Mellencamp just fit that niche perfectly. Great pick. It's Uh-Huh by John Cougar Mellencamp. Number 25. So, so upbeat for the slow start of this song. So before Nirvana launched uh, The World into Grunge, British trio PJ Harvey, named after lead singer Polly Jean Harvey, were already a rising force in the indie music scene. In fact, Kurt Cobain considered their first album, Dry, as one of his top 50. I was born in the desert. But it wasn't until their third album, when Polly switched to going by PJ Harvey as a solo act rather than a band, that I really caught on. This is 1995's To Bring You My Love. To bring you my love. The rather slow, dirgy start to the album is one of its highlights, I think. It may be a little off-putting at first, but it really shows the kind of diversity and fun that this album provides, even though <laughs> it's kind of hard to call something like this fun. But once you know the album back and forth, you love it. And you just kind of groan along with her. 
The album was released in 1995, and by then grunge was in full swing, with countless bands filling the airwaves with great music. But honestly, it could often just start to sound the same. Whether the lighter approach of Gin Blossoms, Better Than Ezra, or Blind Melon, or the harder-edged and frankly stronger releases by Alice in Chains, Stone Temple Pilots, or Pearl Jam, I was enjoying all of it, but PJ Harvey really broke through the noise with this dynamic and innovative album. And this album was a shift in sound and ambition and lyricism for Harvey. She hired U2's producer, Flood, and went places she'd never been, heavily influenced by American blues. It was considered a breakout, and to date is still her best-selling album. It also features her highest-charting single, Down by the Water. It's kind of remarkable for a song like this to get heavy rotation on radio and MTV, given that it's about a new mother drowning her baby. The album was universally praised by critics, ranked number three on Spin Magazine's best album of the 90s, behind Nirvana's Nevermind and Public Enemies, Fear for a Black Planet. But this was a pivotal record for me. By 95, I was starting to branch out from alt-rock powerhouse KROQ and its endless parade of grunge music, so I was exploring new places alternative music could take me. This album made me aware of the many ways artists could express themselves through music, not just the lyrics and instrumentation, but even down to the mixing and production. So Kevin, this was the same year that I moved to the beach and started listening to eclectic music on public radio station KCRW. Beck's Odelay came out that year. I kind of look at Harvey's album as turning the corner. After this, I didn't buy another CD from bands like Bush or the Spin Doctors ever again. <laughs> well, that's probably an episode we should get, you know, we could devote some time I to think we do why, need you, to why do, you bought those in the first place. I think but. we do need to do an episode on shitty 90s bands, because I just <laughs> I would hear one song on the radio and I'd go buy the whole CD. So I'm thinking that when all is said and done with this countdown, when I look at your full list, this might wind up being the highest ranking, like, obscure choice by you. Now, in your world, this album was probably huge, and it it doesn't... It, the word obscure doesn't make sense, but having not been that familiar with it, I, I just can't help but think, okay, I'm going to look at the top 30 of Jeff's and think, that's the one that I just didn't really have any sense of at all. You're kind of exactly right, because I, I, that sounds a little weird to me just to think of uh, PJ Harvey as obscure, because I've been into her, well, basically since this album, but I was even aware of her before this. Uh, with her first albums mm-hmm. but you're right she just never never has gotten any kind of mainstream recognition even though she's the only artist to have won the Mercury Award uh, which awards the best British artist of the year twice she's the only artist who've done that she has a lot of respect in indie circles but never broke through in the mainstream that said I think you're wrong about uh, my my highest ranking obscure pick you'll find another I bet okay so another point you just made too though is that the unique I think advantage you had being in a place like Los Angeles where it's such a hotbed of everything that's going on whereas you know tucked up here in the Northwest you don't necessarily have as immediate access so I can see where your experience of living down there and just constantly hearing new artists being introduced to the LA market it's such a broader canvas for you I think 
and that's a good point because I mentioned two radio stations in this segment. Um, KROQ, which is the alternative rock station that was huge in the early 90s. And that's what I found when I first moved there. I kind of just stayed away from the rock stations, which most matched KISW and KXRX, the two big rock stations from Seattle. I just stayed away from them and got into KROQ, and I was like the alt, alt music guy coming down there. And that had a lot to do mm-hmm. with being introduced to bands like The Replacements and REM while we were in college. But then, midway through the 90s, I completely left them as they started to get into more of just the, like you just mentioned, Slipknot, Lincoln Park. <laughs> they just couldn't get away from that crap. And I, right. and I switched completely over to the public radio station KCRW. And there is no other station I've found in the world like KCRW. Now, there are underground stations that play really diverse music. But KCRW is, it manages to do that while also maintaining a level of professionalism and exposure to the music industry. So they get guests, they get great guests and bands playing in their studio all the time. The channel plays NPR news the rest of the day, but amazing music, and I think that's what's missing in most cities, are really good radio stations. To me, music radio now is mostly crap, and you really have to search hard for good stations. And they only appear, I think, in big cities like probably LA, New York, and London. So now for me at number 25, the reign of the Purple One begins. As Prince breaks through to find his first taste of commercial success on 1999. That's the title track, a protest song about the ever-increasing threat of nuclear war that persisted during the Reagan era. 1999 was actually the lead single, but it didn't catch on at first. It was re-released in the spring of 1983 and eventually hit number 12 on the charts. It was this song, actually, that started Prince's rise to worldwide superstar status. Little Red Corvette was released in February of 1983 and captured audiences with all the classic Prince elements. Funky beats, soulful vocals, a dash of shredding guitar, and of course, lyrics about sex. It became the highest charting single for Prince at that time, peaking at number six. The simple description is that it's a song about a one-night stand, but Prince uses several automobile metaphors to add his own unique twist. "1999" and "Little Red Corvette" were two of the first videos by a black artist to get regular airplay on MTV, paving the way for significant changes to the channel's playlist in the years to follow. Almost a year after its release, "1999" produced a second top ten hit in the fall of 1983. The rockabilly-influenced "Delirious." I get delirious, 
loaded with more car themes and, you guessed it, sexual innuendo. Delirious is actually the shortest song on 1999, which originally was released on vinyl as a double LP. Beyond the three hit singles, this album offers numerous extended tracks and a new variation of funk built around synthesizers and drum machines. This is actually my favorite track from the album, DMSR, or Dance Music Sex Romance, which clocks in at 8 minutes 17 seconds and actually isn't the longest song on the record. In fact, more than half of the 11 tracks on this album are 6 minutes or more. Critical praise for 1999 was universal, and this quote really sums it up for me. It was Paul Thompson of Pitchfork who said, The way that Prince marshaled the Reagan years and the drum machine for his own purposes has rarely been replicated. And Thompson went on to call 1999 a, quote, rare record that has come to define its era while also existing outside of it. He described the album as a computer breathing. Also writing for Pitchfork, in 2016, Maura Johnson wrote that 1999 still sounds like a landmark release in 2016. Jeff, when Prince died in 2016, it was Purple Rain that today's generation of music fan pointed to as his trademark album, and that's certainly a valid assertion. But from my perspective, this record was the game changer, not only for Prince, but for 80s R&B and soul music as well as for the broader landscape, I think, of the pop rock industry. No argument for me there. Purple Rain, of course, exploded everything. But while you were nannering on about the Reagan years, all I can picture was <laughs> the 1999 video. How much you wanted to see that video come on, on MTV. And especially, of course, Wendy. Uh, no, I think it was Lisa with the blonde at the keyboard. Yeah, yeah. It was before Wendy Malvoin, I think, joined the yeah. revolution. But it was, yeah, it was Lisa playing the keyboard with her blonde friend. Yeah, yes. and you just wanted to see that shot. You just waited for that <laughs> shot to come up every time, or at least I did. Well, I and I, I memorable for me on that is that he, Prince was not the primary when this the first iteration of the revolution got together and, and put out this record. A guy named Des Dickerson was actually the lead guitar. And he had some on-camera vocal oh, I remember that. I remember uh, that moments in that video, yeah. but there's also there's also a great moment in that in that video where Prince is singing the uh, the lyric "I got a lion in my pocket and yeah. baby he's ready to roar" and just the way he looks at the camera when he does that yeah. is priceless. I mean that's just quintessential Prince, right? Yeah, he I mean he'd already been around making some music uh, for a few years, but that was just that glittery stage and that big purple jacket, and yep. I mean he'd arrived. You know. Oh yeah. I don't even remember whether I got into this whole album or not at the time. I know I had it on a cassette. Yeah. Listening to now, you're right. I was surprised at how long the album is. Lots of long tracks, which I actually appreciate usually. I, yeah. But I think it just got so eclipsed by Purple Rain that I just kind of didn't pay much attention to the record anymore. Right. I just remembered the hit songs. Yeah. It just it it got swept over very quickly by Purple Rain. But I would. Definitely recommend, obviously, songs like DMSR, but even deeper, uh, there's Automatic and Lady Cab Driver. Yeah. Great compositions, really funky. I am amazed, as, as these writers I've quoted here pointed out, that the core of this record is synthesizer and drum machine, but he does something amazing with it, which is you know pretty much the story of Prince's career. Right. And I'll have to say that now my memory for 1999 is going to a party 
at a Hollywood celebrity's house, Kevin, on New Year's Eve 1998, and the whole party was just this huge dance floor, great DJ, and of course they played this song at midnight, and the whole place was raging. So you asked several episodes ago if I've ever been to a swanky party, and (laughs) that's right, I have. That's, I'll give you a little golf clap for that. Nice. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Number 25 for me, 1999 from Prince. Time now for the pick line. Hey, gents. Brian LeMay, La Mesa, California. Love your show. I had to correct something. Kevin, unless I misunderstood him, said that the police on their synchronicity tour played Shea Stadium and that they were the first group to play there, maybe the only group to play there, since the Beatles had done it back in the mid-60s. Well, got to correct that. On July 9th, 1971, Grand Funk Railroad and Humble Pie played at Shea Stadium and had the distinction of selling that show out faster than the Beatles had. So that was kind of a, a notable uh, event, to say the least. And while I'm talking about Humble Pie... I mean, what a great band. But Humble Pie smoking. Post-Frampton, they did some great stuff with Frampton as well. But that smoking album is something else. It was a number six album in 1972. Um, that would definitely be in my top five. Thanks, gents. Talk to you later. Love your show. Well, I guess I need a fact checker. Playing a little Humble Pie here. Okay. From their album Smoking, 30 Days in the Hole. And it sounds like you're in the hole, Kevin. <laughs> no, we need. Well, let's let's put a uh, let's put a job list vol- volunteer job listing out there for Kevin's fact checker. <laughs> oh, I think the pick line's ringing again. Wow. I guess we better answer that. Better answer it, yeah. Especially because of that ringtone. Hello. Hey guys, it's Brian again. I forgot to mention that in 1970, there was the Festival of Peace at Shea Stadium. Get this, Janis Joplin, Creedence, Steppenwolf, Johnny Winter, Dion Warwick, John Sebastian, Poco, and uh, Shanana was there. Oh, Miles Davis, man. And the James Gang. My goodness. What kind of a gig would that have been? I'll bet you it was cheap. Back when uh, rock and roll was really for the people. And hats off to you guys for trying to bring that ethos back, okay? All right, talk to you later. Bye-bye. All right, well, he cl- clearly doesn't hate me. So you're doubly wrong, I guess. <laughs> wow, yeah, no, he had to call back and, and slap me down a second time. But I uh, looked it up, and he said it was cheap, yes. It was the tickets were 350 to 850 for that show. It was a fundraiser for anti-war politicians. And translated to dollars today, I, I I put it in the inflation calculator, and that would be twenty five to sixty one dollars. Wow, that is cheap because today that would be like five hundred dollars. Totally, yeah. That list he was reading off was pretty impressive. Right up until he got to Sha Na Na. Sha Na Na. I I don't get that. And then Miles Davis. <laughs> yeah, that where. Uh, what a curveball that was. I All mean, right, so I also looked it up. In addition to Grand Funk Humble Pie and this festival, between Beatles and the Police, we also got The Who with okay. Openers The Clash. Wow. Jethro Tull with Robin Trower opening in 76. Uh, the Who was in 82. And Simon and Garfunkel in 83, the same month The Police played. Jeez. I, 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 was, I feel so 
I feel so deceived. I was lied to back in the day because there was some there was some selling point that was going around about how special it was that the police played Shay, and now I I feel like what a load of crap that <laughs> they they were just next in line. Yeah, well, you've gone your whole life until now. I know it really uh, really kind of bums me out, Jeff. And just but, to to wrap up the Shea Stadium thing after the police, we also got Rolling Stones, Elton John, Eric Clapton. And Bruce Springsteen. And the last one was Billy Joel in 2008. Yes, I didn't know about Billy Joel. The pick line is still open. As you can, as you now know, you can also call with corrections. That's for <laughs> the pick 3-4. That's 484-374-2534. So we have a celebrity guest for our next countdown number. Can you guess what it is for number 24? Oh, the, the person who's going to say number 24? Yeah. Oh, uh, how about um, uh, Kiefer Sutherland? Oh, who gets it? Did I get it? Previously, I'm 24. Yes. Kiefer, not getting royalties for that. 24, 24, 24, 24. <laughs> wow. That was some uh, impressive tape splicing you just did there. <laughs> yes. I got the razor blade in the tape out. That's right. So if we're going to talk about album sides, like just one side of a record... Which, of course, no longer really applies with streaming. But back when I was a kid, side one or side two of that record or that cassette, if we're going to go by sides, then side one of my pick at number 24 is definitely one of my favorite album sides of all time. This is Dire Straits' third studio album called Making Movies. And it's my pick at number 24. My love for this album really comes down to just three things, and those are the three songs that are on side one. To me, it's one of the best examples of poetry and music. Mark Knopfler was the writer of almost every Dire Straits song, and here he brings together three stories of some of the best and memorable guitar rock music that I've ever heard. first track tunnel of love an eight minute track about a young guy in love at the carnival one of the things i think that makes this song so great is that he really lets them breathe they're not short songs they don't follow the traditional verse chorus verse structure it's really what i think a lot of rock and roll songs should be and could be if artists didn't stick to such strict structures song has several different parts that just work so well, whether it's a guitar solo, a slowed down bit, a bridge. It's not just poetry in the lyrics, it's poetry in the whole composition. And girl, it looks so pretty to me. This is still the first track, Tunnel of Love. Like it always did, like the Spanish city to me, when we were kids. 
Mark Knopfler and Dire Straits are one of the most respected music groups in rock history. They released only six albums, and most of them did pretty much the same with the exception of their fifth album, Brothers in Arms. That had the mega hit Money for Nothing and went to number one in virtually every country. And although I like that album a lot, the only one making my list is making movies, and it really does have to do with these three songs. The second track is called Romeo and Juliet. It was their best performing single from this album, and it kind of starts off like it's going to tell Shakespeare's story, Romeo and Juliet. The lyrics will tell you as much. A love-struck Romeo Sing the streets of serenade Laying everybody low With a love song that he made Find the streetlight Steps out of the shade Says something like You and me, babe How about it? Juliet says Hey, it's Romeo You nearly give me a heart attack He's underneath the window She's singing but then you realize this song is really more about unrequited love. Juliet sours on the relationship. What Knopfler is actually singing about is a failed relationship he had with another musician, a woman he helped find success in her earlier days, only to see her break up with him. And I dream your dream for you, and now your dream is real. How can you look at me as if I was just another one of your deals? Like Tunnel of Love, the song does not have a traditional structure of verse, chorus, verse. And I really like the ending when you realize that Romeo's love will no longer be returned. And the song kind of just fades away with a wistful guitar solo. Like I said earlier, it's not just the poetry and the words, but poetry and the way the instrumentation works. And the third song is called Skate Away. I think I've realized this is my favorite song in the album, and that has a lot to do with the fact that it was a ubiquitous video on MTV's early days. I seen a girl on a one-way down a wrong way it's pretty simply about a girl skating through a city. It was one of the rare videos that was shot before MTV existed and was something more than just a band performing. It was actually trying to tell a story even though it comes across today as kind of cheesy. But they played it so often that it was hard to miss. The girl in the video is wearing a mini skirt, her hair is in braids, and she's got a hardback book-sized Walkman attached to her hip. So as I was ranking my list, I kind of kept being a little bit surprised at how far up I wanted to push this album, because it really is only side one that I'm in love with. 
Side 2 has some decent tracks. Expresso Love and Solid Rock are both signature Dire Straits songs. They performed them a lot in concert. But I really just love these songs so much. Whenever I hear them, I want to hear all three of them in a row. I want to sing along to the whole thing. So, damn it, it's number 24 and I'm not going to change it. Kevin and I had all the Dire Straits albums, which weren't a lot. I mean, there was the first one, there was uh, Communique, there was uh, Love Over Gold. I really liked them all. They were just a great band when I discovered them. But this is the one, these three songs just always stuck with me. Hmm. And just, I mean, you just can't beat them as far as like great guitar rock from that era. Yeah, well, first, let's start with this song. I, too, saw this uh, video repeatedly because I was one I was in the same crowd as you that just mindlessly stared at MTV for weeks and months at a time you know when we were I guess I was in the eighth grade you were probably in high school but but this song makes the album 100% I I have to say I wasn't as engaged with this record all the way through but I'm gonna say great pick for no other reason than I think Skate Away is the coolest song probably Dire Straits does. Uh, I really like uh, Sultans of Swing because I think the ending guitar playing is unsurpassed in anything in rock. But to me, this song just sounds like cool. It just sounds like a cool rock song. Right. And I don't know. I, and it's the it's the opening percussion, the way it the way it just kind of gently unfolds at the beginning and sort of sneaks up on you. It's a song I just don't get tired listening to. And I, every time I hear it, by, by the way, I see the girl skating with her big Walkman in my head every time. That's my number 24, Making Movies by Dire Straits. All right, my next pick, the debut album from four dudes from Dublin, Ireland. Pondering adolescence and the transition from youthful innocence to the experience of adulthood and achieving critical acclaim for their spirit, their ambition, and their potential. Boy is U2's first full-length album, released in 1980, greeting the listener with this song that 40 years later can still whip 70,000 fans into a frenzy. That, of course, is I Will Follow, which lead singer Bono wrote as a tribute to his mother, who had died when he was age 14. The song has the distinction of being the only one in the entire U2 catalog that has been performed live on each of their many concert tours over the years. When Boy was recorded, U2 had been around for a few years, having formed in 1976. They had compiled a repertoire of 40 songs that they were using for live performances, and the 11 tracks on Boy were taken from that group. The album also marks their first collaboration with longtime producer and confidant Steve Lillywhite, who was actually a last-minute replacement. Martin Hannett was the producer of Joy Division, and he was slated to produce Boy, but the band objected. Subsequently, a tape of their music was sent to Lily White, who at first wasn't impressed. But after seeing U2 perform live at a small school hall in Ireland, Lily White agreed to come on board. That song is Out of Control, a song about mortality and another enduring track from Boy that still shows up in U2's live shows. 
Thematically, Boy explores the psychology of adolescence, the transition of moving from childhood to manhood. The album's lyrics and atmospheric music examine themes ranging from the dawn of sexuality, the exile from one's past, mental disturbance, and youthful ambition. Boy received generally favorable reviews upon its release. Critics called it honest, direct, and distinctive, adding that it, quote, achieved a rare mixture of innocence and aggression with an overall feeling of loving care and energy intertwined with simplistic and direct hooks and chords. In 2003, Boy made Rolling Stone magazine's initial list of 500 greatest albums of all time, ranking 417th. The sound of this record is generally regarded as post-punk, and it represents the, a very brief opening chapter in the broader story of U2's sound, which has seen multiple transformations over their 40-year career. Jeff, it's not their best-known album by a long shot, but Boy has achieved platinum status, and remains highly regarded by the critics. When you view it alongside the entire U2 catalog, Boy easily gets overlooked, but it's an impressive debut, especially when you consider how raw this band was at the time, still very much learning their craft. Did you uh, get it when it first came out? Oh no, no. I think I first heard I Will Follow watching uh, The Last American Virgin on HBO one night. They just randomly tossed it in there for some reason. So I kind of had that itty bitty little exposure to it. But truthfully, the first U2 song I ever heard was uh, Gloria and it was on MTV. And that was from their next album, October. So I didn't go back and listen to this record till years later, uh, probably even after I'd heard Unforgettable Fire. Yeah, so a record I'm not really that familiar with. I've joked about it several times about the big mystery of how you two will rank on your list. And this was a surprise. I didn't, I actually didn't think Boy was going to be on there at all mm. because you've already done Unforgettable Fire and, and War, and it's kind of hard for me to think of this album as being better than those. But you're the expert. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's the experience of someone who's listened to all their records a lot, been to a lot of their shows. I, I don't know. It's just there's something. Something about the energy, the the youthful achievement of this band, you know, when they literally were, I mean, it, what you're hearing is them, like, learning to play their instruments. So that's my number 24 pick, Boy, from U2 from 1980. Number 23! It's been a long time. That was my Bo Roberts segue. <laughs> This album is officially untitled, but it's been known as the fourth album, Zoso, Runes, Four Symbols, but most commonly is Led Zeppelin IV, and it's my pick at number 23. Usually considered Zeppelin's best work, came after a lackluster critical and commercial reception of Led Zeppelin III. The band wanted to respond with something different, something better. They sequestered themselves in a country home in England and recorded most of the album there. It would become one of the best-selling albums of all time and also considered by many to be the basis of all heavy metal to follow. That 
That's the album's opener, Black Dog, which lyrically has nothing to do with a dog, but was named after one that used to hang out around the house while they recorded. Like almost every song here, it is iconic Zeppelin. All eight tracks here have always been hard rock and classic radio staples. But none more so than the track, which during my teenage years was always number one on the KISW Top 1000. There's a lady who's sure All that glitters is gold And she's buying the stairway to Now there's no doubt this track was overplayed in the 70s and 80s. It was also a sucky song to dance to, but often played at high school dances anyway. <laughs> and, for the, and for the geeks like me too scared to fast dance, it gets awkward at the very ending of the song while you are still uncomfortably shuffling back and forth with the girl you don't know but finally had the guts to ask because it was the last song of the night and damn it, I wasn't going to go home a complete loser. If there's a bus <laughs> in your head, don't be alone It's just a sprinkly for the make-queen. No, it, they, they, they would play it. And it's a slow song, so it's like the last song. But then it gets fast at the end, and everybody's just still kind of rocking back and forth. And some of the braver kids would I, actually start dancing fast to the... Uh, yeah, the, what, what does that even look like? I mean, that's that's like slam dancing all of a sudden. <laughs> I know, I know. Anyway, they had a top 1,000 list of songs every year on the radio station around Christmas time. And it was never even a mystery what number one would be. And number two was usually Hey Jude by the Beatles. Mm. But the, the interesting question I think today is, would it still be number one? Would it still be the number one rock song of no, all time? probably not. Well, well what, what, what would possibly... Smells like Teen Spirit? Uh, maybe. I, I don't know. I mean... Well, I just... It's, it's, I, I just that's my knee-jerk reaction only because it seems like these lists are having to... We talked about this previously. They're adapting to the influx of new and, and more youthful listeners. So, you know, we have to account for, for what what they think are classics. It's funny that the, the Seattle area radio list was topped by Stairway to Heaven. I think Portland tried to not be Seattle, so whenever KGON did their list, I'm pretty sure it was always a day in the life was number one. Oh, interesting, yeah. And this was like number two, just to go, oh, well, you know, it's just not good enough, or, or you know, <laughs> Portland's just different, so whatever. Well, it was always number one. It was always overplayed, and my favorite track these days from four is When the Levee Breaks, but alas, Kevin, I will save it for your segment because I'm pretty sure <laughs> you're going to have it on. You're going to oh, have yeah. this. Well, I, there's only eight songs on this thing, so you're going to have to leave me a couple of bones here, right? Yeah. <laughs> so what I did find interesting, though, uh, was something I didn't know was that the Battle of Evermore was actually uh, a duet uh, with singer Sandy Dino. Queen of light took her bow, and then she turned to go. I, when I listened to that the other day, I was like, that does not sound like Robert Plant. There's yeah, gotta be I, I, I always thought it was him just Me too. like kind of doing two different voices. It's not only that there's two voices, but he kind of sings the lead, basically the narrator of the song. Mm-hmm. And Sandy Denny sings the part of the town crier in response. Yeah, and she—I mean—and and Plant can hit those notes, so yeah. you just think, oh, it's him. Right? Yeah, 
but it's actually uh, uh, Sandy Denny and the only Led Zeppelin song that features a female singer. So, this, Kevin, this is one of those ones I knew we'd both have high oh, yeah. on the list, but once again, we missed having it in the same episode. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and again, thank you for, I mean, I don't know how I can, you know, when it comes to my turn to include this on my list, I still don't know how you just don't have some piece of it about Stairway to Heaven, so I have to come up with that. Um, and, and until that time, I, I'm just going to just continue to ponder and just chuckle at the idea of, of Stairway to Heaven being a dance song at a, I mean, played at a high school day. I, I can't just, believe that you n- never, uh, never happened at your high school. No, no, it was, uh, I mean, it might have, not in my time at least, but uh, it just cracks me up. I mean, that's, that would be something out of an SNL skit or, you know, something you'd see on uh, it was not, you know, Young I mean, Sheldon. You got to remember in the 80s how fewer songs there were available than there are now. Oh, true, I, I mean, I, I, you know, you would think about rock and roll starting in the 50s or whatever. Yeah. And by the time we were in the 80s, there were millions of songs. But there's got to be like 100 to, to 1,000 times more now. I mean, oh, there's sure. just so many more. And yeah. so back then it was just like, what do we play? I don't know. Sweet Home Alabama or? <laughs> <laughs> but I found something funny um, by critic Steve Hyden. Okay. He observed in 2018 that the album's popularity kind of almost creates reflective bias in both fans and critics. Yeah. He said, there are two unwritten laws about the album. Okay. The first was that a listener must claim a track from side two. The deep cuts with credibility side was his or her favorite. And I, I think I could do that. And the second was that one should never say it was their favorite among the band's albums. Yeah, that's tough. I mean, the thing you brought up at the beginning with this is that it was so ridiculously huge, not only Stairway to Heaven, but the album itself, that if you were a fan of rock music, it seemed like burnout on this record was inevitable. But going back and listening to it to prepare for this recording, I was like, yeah, this is this is just brilliant. This one has to be at the top of the list of a rock album where pretty much every track yeah. got... A, a decent, if not substantial, amount of radio airplay. I mean, all eight of these songs, right? You say there's few albums like that, which is true, but the few albums that exist like that are mostly Zeppelins. Yeah, I know. <laughs> pretty much, pretty much one, two, and four, every song. Yeah. Well, it's a great choice. Great choice has to be there. From the heavy metal of rock and roll to the dance favorite, Stairway to Heaven. That's my <laughs> choice at number twenty-three. Up next for me at 23, R.E.M. starts its transition from college rock favorites to commercial dominance. That song is Begin the Begin the opening track on Life's Rich Pageant, which is R.E.M.'s fourth studio album, released in late July of 1986. It's the only R.E.M. album produced by Don Gaiman, who's best known for producing John Mellencamp's four straight multi-platinum albums of the 1980s. Collaborating with Gaiman, R.E.M. used Mellencamp's studio in Indiana for these recording sessions, and their sound moved from the more obscure and dense work of their earlier records to a more accessible, hard rock-influenced. Yeah. 
That is the song that really got me hooked on this album. It's the second track called These Days. Hearing it again in preparation for this episode, it really struck me how the guitar and drums on this record actually do echo what you hear on Mellencamp's uh, records of this time, particularly an album like Scarecrow, which came out in 1985. In making Life Switch Pageant, R.E.M. bassist Mike Mills said the band wanted to get away from the sort of murky feelings and sounds of their previous records. He said they wanted a really hard-driving record, but also wanted to throw in pianos and accordions and banjos and whatnot as a way of diversifying. With R.E.M.'s fan base beginning to grow beyond its college rock boundaries, Life's Rich Pageant became the band's first gold album, and at the time, it was their most commercially successful in the U.S., peaking at number 21 on the Billboard charts. Life's Rich Pageant has plenty of odd twists, but as a whole, it's really an album without a weakness or a song that you would automatically skip over to get to the good stuff. On the outside, the so this one's actually my favorite from side two, I guess, back then. What if we give it away? Jeff, credit really goes to you for encouraging me back in college to give this record a try. I had heard of R.E.M., but had not listened to any of their stuff until Document came out and those songs were getting radio airplay. I'm pretty sure it was during one of our early music conversations where you basically said, look, if you like Document, you need to check this album out. So uh, 30 years plus later, if I haven't officially thanked you, uh, thank you. What if we give it away? You're welcome. Great pick. As I've mentioned a few times, I uh, this is my favorite R.E.M. album, and it will be coming up, so I will save most of my comments for the next episode, where it will appear. <laughs> nice um, teaser. Nice teaser, yes. I'm sure people are anxiously awaiting now. But I will say the one thing that, uh, that connects this album to you is the song these days, because back in our... Uh, DJ days, I believe after we did the album toss of Document, we did the album giveaway and you were on the air that morning and like a rebel, you played These Days, which was not on the rotation list, <laughs> much to the disdain of the program director in the other room. No, it was the music director, I think, who got mad at me. Yeah, <laughs> that's my memory of uh, Life's Rich Pageant and Kevin too. <laughs> so there's my number 23 from 1986, Life's Rich Pageant from R.E.M. Kevin, there are a few things in my high school senior year that can eclipse the significance of church. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to get through this thing called life. And by church, I mean, of course, the church of Prince, the Revolution, Apollonia, Morrissey in the Time, and Purple Rain. The Afterworld. Right there is where the title of the movie comes in. You cannot extract this album, the sound of this album, from the visuals that go with it from the movie, which I have seen probably a hundred times, 99 of which were during my senior year. <laughs>
And like we talked about earlier in the episode, 1999 came out and just loved the videos for that and Little Red Corvette. But this album just was exploded on the scene and yeah. in my imagination, which I guess wasn't really my imagination, it was Prince's imagination for the crazy cultural landmark that was the Purple Rain movie. But this song, of course, less surprisingly than Stairway to Heaven, was a huge dance song. Oh, yeah. And for the first time, I think you really realized what an amazing guitarist Prince was. There was oh, yeah. definitely guitar on on his previous albums, but in this one, he just took it full blast. I remember this album mostly for its iconic lines and moments from different songs. A song like uh, The Beautiful Ones, which was, uh, again, I can't extract the scene from the movie where he sings this song crazy on the floor at the end, screaming and screeching. And of course, there's the open to Computer Blue. Yes, Lisa. Is the water warm enough? Yes. Kind of the pseudo-sexual, submissive Shall we begin? sounds of Wendy and Lisa. Yes, Lisa. With Prince guitar in the background. <laughs> yeah. But the biggest one of all, of course, <laughs> which everybody just thought it was so racy to say masturbating in a song. With a magazine. Yeah. Knew a girl named Nikki. I guess you could say she was a sex fiend. I met her in a hotel lobby, masturbating with a magazine. This song was actually one of the main songs that prompted Tipper Gore to get parental guidance stickers on albums. Yes, it did. Also freaked out many a nun at the Catholic high school I went to when we play this at the dances. <laughs> they would let you. They wouldn't run up and stop the tape. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. They would. Oh yeah. So this is the only soundtrack on my list, the only Academy Award winner on my list because it won Best Original Song Score. It also won the Grammy and Brit Awards for Best Soundtrack. It's Prince's sixth studio album, the first one to heavily feature full band performances making it musically denser than his previous records. Although it was his sixth album, it was the first to go number one, spending 24 weeks at the top of the charts. Let's Go Crazy and When Doves Cry both reached number one, and the title track, Purple Rain, reached number two. Prince joined the Beatles and Elvis as being the only artists to have number one single, number one album, and number one movie all at the same time. Now, all nine songs on this album are amazing, I think, but the, the last three just blow you away. And they are the last three played in the movie, slightly different order, but the third and second to last songs are I Will Die For You and Baby I'm A Star, which were actually recorded live in the very club that the movie was shot in. No need to worry, no need to cry. That's the First Avenue Club in Minneapolis. And I Will Die For You flows brilliantly right into Baby I'm a Star. But for that transition to be perfect, the way that we all knew it, you have to actually play your old CD, or at least the version of 
your CD on iTunes because if you play it now from a streaming service, it actually separates the two, which mm-hmm. is just silly. I don't know why. Uh, they you know, that's yeah. sacrilege. Yeah. It really is. Yep. We're getting into real music geekdom here, but when you have an album <laughs> that I've heard as many times as this one, these two songs flowing together just like they did in the movie. Sure. High energy. Everybody's happy. Prince is not going to kill himself, and he's going to date Apollonia. The world is fine. But then, of course, after this one, we get the eight-minute ballad, Purple Rain, which is really probably the only ballad that was ever big for Prince. And it is big. It is the iconic song from this album. This many years later, it is definitely my favorite song from this album. I never meant to call you I did go to the Purple Rain concert in Mm. my senior year of high school with my uh, exchange student brother Gary and my two twin sisters. It was an amazing show. We were on the Mm. floor. We were a little bit far back, but we made our way up towards the front. Sheila E. opened. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. came back and played drums on a lot of the Prince songs. Kingdom or Tacoma Dome? This was in the Tacoma Dome. Yeah. Wow. I remember he had the guitar that would actually squirt fluid out of the neck after he stroked (laughs) the neck of the guitar. I I didn't know about that. Wow. Just brilliant. As far as quintessential 80s go, this is only my number 22, but it may be the biggest 80s album on my list. Wow. Prince and the Revolution, Purple Rain. At 22 for me is the psychedelic debut masterpiece from Jim Morrison and the Doors, which includes this Summer of Love classic. You know that I would be a liar If I was to say to you Girl, we couldn't get much higher Come away and light my fire That, of course, is Light My Fire, which I would guess is probably the greatest rock song to feature an organ solo. I really can't think of another one. Although maybe some would argue for Argent's Hold Your Head Up. I'm not sure. But at just under seven minutes, Light My Fire wasn't exactly radio friendly, but it received such demand for radio airplay that a special version was created that was less than three minutes long with both the organ and guitar solos removed. The song spent three weeks at number one in the summer of 1967. The Doors' debut album remains a central catalyst in the psychedelic rock movement of the late 60s. Among those inspired by this album, you ask? Well, none other than Sir Paul McCartney. Legend has it that McCartney has claimed that following the release of The Doors in early 67, he wanted the Beatles to capitalize on The Doors' musical style when they were making this upcoming album Paul was composing called Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Well, the club said it's time to close now. That's track two from The Doors. It's called Soul Kitchen capturing the band's lyrical contributions to Psychedelica with lines like, your fingers weave quick minarets, speaking in secret alphabets. I light another cigarette, learn to forget. For their time, the doors were bold and different. 
popularizing a new sound for the times, infusing rock with jazz, classical, R&B, and yes, the blues, as we hear on this remake of Backdoor Man. I think Backdoor Man is actually one of the hidden gems on The Doors' debut album. Guitarist Robbie Krieger hits the notes perfectly to complement Jim Morrison's howling, snarling vocals. Jeff, I mentioned in our last episode how late 60s rock and roll was something that my friends and I really dove into during our last year in high school. I think because there were just stretches in the 80s when the music on the airwaves was just pretty awful. And what we now call classic rock was just the right antidote at that time. The doors were right there at the top of the list for me. But also, I not really realizing at the time, but I think also what kind of swept me up with them is this is that unique blend of stylings. This was one of those bands that, uh, while it was a classic rock band, I discovered you know pretty much on my own. I mean, through friends, but it was not one of those albums that a sibling in my family had, and I listened to a lot at home. This one I kind of found, you know, because. I think they were I think radio was really starting to repopularize the music of the 60s particularly that stretch from 66 you know until we changed into the 70s and this was when you were how old 17 okay I just went head over heels for the doors I just I really dove into this record they were this sort of shooting star this comet for four or five years and then with Morrison's death they you know of course they went away but Deservedly, this record gets the critical praise, but I think it's also uh, appropriately appreciated in terms of its achievement as sort of a cultural symbol of its time, the, the summer of love, the psychedelic years. Yeah, well, kudos to you. I didn't actually realize that you uh, were that much into these Doors albums. I did not really discover them until college when we were at the station, and I had the best of the Doors collection earlier on this uh, countdown. But this album is... All songs, I think, but two are on that collection. Yeah. I think the book was called No One Here Gets Out Alive. That was the, the autobiography of Morris, and I read that, I think, maybe the summer after high school. He was the king. I just thought, wow, what, a, what an amazing story. What an incredible front man, stage presence. They so seamlessly blended those different styles, but on so many of their tunes, at the core, is just great rock music. All right, well, great pick and wrapping up another episode where we're ready to go into our top 21. So, Kevin, have you thought about your list and how many you think are going to be on mine? Yes, yeah, I actually did the did my homework assignment. Uh, I'm going to come up with, so we have 20, we have 21 left to go. 21 right? left, 21. Uh-huh. I think seven of my remaining will wind up on your list, too. Okay, I think you're overstating it because I'm guessing... Mm. Four, for sure, will be on your list. Fifth one, I'm about 50% sure. Mm -hmm. And then a sixth one, I think is only a slim chance. But that's it. I'm saying six at the most. And probably, probably five is my guess. 
So yeah, clearly you've done a little bit more mental arithmetic on this than I have, but <laughs> there, there were things that I saw when I was looking at the remaining albums and I thought, I thought, okay, yeah, Jeff's going to have that on there. And and maybe what I was actually thinking was, how could Jeff not have that on his on his list? So maybe that's a whole thing we're going to go into. As uh, we, yeah. You're going to talk about one of your choices and the first thing I'm going to go is, what? Jeff? Okay, well, we'll see who's closer. You're guessing seven. I'm guessing five. So that's it for this episode of The Pick and The Pick 100. We have 21 left to go. That'll be in three episodes. Go to our website to see the list so far, as well as the list from all our Pick Line callers. And call The Pick Line at 4ThePick34. That's 484-374-2534. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. All of them at The PickCast. That's at The PickCast. From Portland, Oregon, I'm Jeff Payne. I'm Kevin Toon. Thanks for listening, everyone. See you next time.